open to this. Psalms 51. We've been there this whole year. Psalms 51. We'll only be there for a moment. The story you're well familiar of in Psalm 51, David's sin. David's sin left such a weight on him and such heaviness on him that he lost his joy. He lost his gladness. He went through the emotions of life as a king, maybe as a father. He just went through the motions without joy, without gladness. He said in verse 8, make me to hear joy. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins, blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, because it certainly is not. My heart smites me. My heart gives me no relief and no peace. There is dirt there. There is something unclean there. Something is wrong. My heart needs to be recreated. There is a restoration I need, Lord, to go back where I have been and, and how I know it can be when a man knows God and relates to God. I want that bad. I want to have that confidence of getting up every day and knowing who's on my side in life and where my help comes from and to have the assurance that God goes with me every step of my life. I still remember the day I got saved. The preacher said that. If you'll take the first step, God will be with you all the rest of your steps. And I remember that got me out of the aisle. And it's been like that. But when you don't have that, when there are those times in your life when you sin and you don't do anything about your sin and you let your sin live with you, and you don't deal with it. You come to a conclusion when you hear the gospel preach that there's something wrong with your testimony. You don't have much joy. Oh, you can laugh at stories and, and act pretty good amongst the saints, but you get angry easy. You're mad half the time. You don't cope well. You grumble a lot. You complain a lot. It doesn't matter what's said about God or what church you go to. It just seems like you're overwhelmed with something that's not free anymore because of sin. That's what this psalm's about. David was so aware of his problem, how long he grieved over this and how long this heaviness stayed with him, I don't know. But it didn't just go away because Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 came up and said, Thou art the man. And David said, I have sinned before God. All of this didn't leave because he said that. He might have been forgiven. I mean, right away, who knows? I assume he was. But boy, there was something about the weight of this and the heaviness of it that it became the cry of this man's heart. This man cried out, David the king, he cried out, he said, Lord, Blot out all my transgressions. I'm cut off. Something is wrong. He said in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And then in verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. 
that what I'm going through, you're fair in how you're dealing with me. You're just in the dispensing of your judgment. David did not hide his sin. He didn't want it to stick around. Whenever Nathan said to him, you're the man, how long after that experience before he wrote this and how long after he wrote this before the joy came back to his life? I don't know, but I guarantee you there was a time, like a season. Y'all remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember the prodigal son got his inheritance? He wanted to live it up. He wanted to have fun. He didn't want to sit around some old stinky farm and feed chickens and, and cows. He wanted to go out where the action was, and he did. He got his inheritance. He went out where the action was, and when his money ran out, his friends left him. You, you remember the story. And then the process begins. He suddenly realized, the Bible says he came to his senses. This is the work of God in turning us around. Because if he doesn't do this and you don't get turned around, you learn to be religious. You learn to go to church and be a member and try to make things work. And they don't. Because you've left out the essential need in your life is to repent. And a lot of people leave it out. You know, come forward, join church, raise your hand, get a star, a badge, a pen, get baptized, take your seat, give and take communion. You're all right. No hatred of sin, no regard of, uh, of what I've been forgiven of. It's just a casual thing. But the prodigal, no doubt, while he was languishing down there without friends, without money, feeding somebody's hogs who were eating better than he was, and he came to his senses. He came to his senses, and the realization of how much of a fool the devil had made of him came. Look at me. Look at me. I'm not smart. I'm not having fun. That fun I thought I was going to have didn't last long. Look at me. I'm miserable. I'm a mental wreck. I have no joy, no peace. I have no direction. Friends, I have no friends. I can't go home after the way I treated my father with my inheritance. I can't go back there. I have no place to go. I have nothing. Boy, that's a dark time in a man's life whenever that kind of a realization hit. But God allows that. Let it happen. Think about the condition you're in and how you got there. He said, I'm going home. Years ago, I read where Charles Finney, who in his revival meetings, there was such an anointing on the fire in his message that people would begin to weep during the message. And they begin to grab with their sins. They couldn't get away from it, didn't know how to get rid of it. Had been living with it all their life. They were miserable people. They were just citizens in a town going to some church, but they were not free. And he sent them home. Somebody said to him once, why are you sending them home? Boy, they were ready. He said, let them live in their misery a while. And remember how bad sin is and what it does to you and how it takes away from you everything that God wants you to have, like joy and peace. Let them live with that a while. Let them experience that. 
And of course, you know the story. He said, I'm going home. I got nowhere else to go. And I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I'd rather work in my father's farm than I would down here or wherever he was. And while he was yet a long way off, you know the story, his father met him. Father saw him coming. Who is, who is that coming? That's my son. He has turned himself around to come back home. His head is bowed. His heart is humble. There's a contrition that is with him. He's no longer a rock and roll star. He's no longer cool. He's no longer was up. All of that's gone because he has come to the end of that and found that it's a dead end. He wants to come back home to his father. A wonderful picture. And while he was yet afar off, the father ran to him or met him and embraced him. And the son said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true repentance. A hatred, a remorse, a dissatisfaction with your life, your deeds, and your actions to the point that the most important thing in my life is to get rid of this and to be accepted again by my father. Even if I'm just a slave, I want your favor. And of course, you know the story. He got the robe and the ring and the fatted calf and so forth. God does that when you repent. Your testimony is not, you know, as so often is said when you come for water baptism. Okay, have you repented of your sin? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not living like they did. They're not living like they have. Nothing really has changed. Oh, yeah, yeah, I repented. Because it's just a word. It's just a phrase you've learned to use. Yeah, I repent. It's a church word. And yet when you are really sorry for your sins, well, you, you know, you think of the story of the publican. Remember the publican? He went to church, and the Pharisee was in church, and the Bible said he was self-righteous. He said, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I'm not like Thomas here. I give tithes. I make sure that I measure my seeds out. I relate to the Bible. I don't really know who God is, but I know what he said, and I'm trying to relate to that. So he does everything legal. And he thinks by his legalism, because that's man's wisdom. This is how I think you ought to do it. This is the way I see it. Well, in my opinion, that's man's wisdom. It always ends in death because there is a way that seems right unto man. And the end of man's way is always death. And yet when you begin to tell people, let me tell you about God's way. Oh, you're just too hard. Oh, it's too hard. That's the nature of people that are living in sin. You don't want to hear it. That's why he said, preach it in season or out of season. Don't look at their faces. Give them the truth. Pharisee was full of himself. He was proud of himself. Look what I've done. If anybody should be regarded by the Almighty God, it must be me. Because I'm there. And then there was me, me and Thomas. Publican. He was so ashamed of his life and his unworthiness before God that he had no place with God. There was no reason that God should accept him. I don't know if he'd ever tried to do right. A lot of people do, but that doesn't work either. 
And Jesus said, the man bowed his head, and he said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I have done it all wrong. I've had a lot of controversy with you, Lord. You said this, and I've been looking for people to tell me that it, that's not what you meant. And I'm looking to settle down in some nice religious atmosphere where you make me feel good. And none of that's worked because the reality is when God meets you, when the Almighty gets through that web of religion and God himself confronts you, and it'll happen at least once in your life, and you come face to face with the Redeemer, and you see yourself in light of him and who he is and how wonderful and spiritual and holy he is. And the contrast between him and you is such that you have to admit, I have lived my whole life in denial of you. Whatever I've heard in church that didn't fit my lifestyle, I just kicked it out. I figured you were too good to let me go to hell. That I wasn't bad enough to perish. And such, I think, is the condition of a lot of people, maybe most people, in religious atmospheres. They have joined a system of religion. They have learned a routine or a way to do things spiritually, they call it. And yet their life has never changed. Fruits worthy of repentance, as John required, it's never happened. You see, the New Testament, the message of the New Testament, it's interesting because when you find the word repent as a command, it usually is followed with something else. Repent and be converted. Repent and be baptized. Or repent and wash away thy sins. Or repent and believe. It was the first message in the Bible. In Luke 24 and verse 47, Jesus said this message is to go out into the whole world that you preach repentance from sin. You preach that to his disciples, to us as his people, and all the people we're going to face. The message, the initial, elementary, fundamental, foundational, essential message of Christianity is first and foremost, repent. Repent. Mark chapter 1, listen to what John the Baptist said in the first chapter of Mark. He said in verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of what? Of repentance. That was what he came to say. Turn away from your sins, your lifestyle, your attitude that is corrupting you the way you see things. That's not the way God sees things. Putting you in opposition to God. Turn away from that, which is what repentance implies. Give it up. Let go of it. God must judge that. Everything that lives that way will be rejected. And if you maintain your ways, he, as a loving and fair God, will have to judge you because that was your choice to reject him and go your own way. Turn away from your sins. Why should you die? Look in verse 15. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and what? Let me ask you a question. Ponder it for a moment. 
the first message of Jesus here was repent and believe. You can't repent unless there is something to believe. Are you with me? And you can't continue on your life unless having begun by repentance, you are given continually things to repent of and things to believe. Repentance is just not something once you do. It lives with you your whole life because you're being exposed throughout your life and you recognize wrongs and shortcomings in your life. So he said, his message, he went out preaching the kingdom of God saying, repent and believe. Now, is it possible that a whole lot of people have tried to believe who never really came to the Lord the right way? That we have joined something. We become a part of something. You children, you young folks, just your parents brought you here. You've been in it your whole life and you, you've learned to do what we do and it's not very exciting. It's kind of dull, to tell you the truth. You know, maybe you've never repented yourself. Maybe you've just assumed. That's that man's wisdom thing. You've assumed you're all right because I don't drink. I don't run around. Maybe I'm still a virgin. I mean, maybe, maybe I've gone to that extreme. And I don't watch ugly movies. And I don't hang around a crowd that cusses and drinks. I keep myself clean. What would I repent of? What do I turn away from? Do you think maybe, just possibly, the devil has convinced a lot of young people that they don't need this dramatic emotional repentance I'm speaking of? Oh, repentance is an emotional thing. You can trust me with that. It has to do with the brokenness of heart, a deep, deep contrition and sorrow of the soul. This is what they were to go out and to preach. The message in the Bible, Luke 13, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Repent ye. It's the message of the scripture. John the Baptist, the disciples in Mark chapter 6, when they went out, they went out preaching repentance. Turn from your sin. What good is the message of God to a carnal soul? Are we trying to preach a, a spiritual word to people that have never come to God the right way? You can't live this life. You cannot grow. You can't grow. You cannot become what God wants you to be unless when you came to him, you came to him on his terms, recognizing that you are altogether a sinner a criminal before God. You've dreaded hearing what he had to say since you were a child or while you're a child. And in your heart, you're full of yourself. I don't want to give up this. I don't want to give up that. I don't want to stop doing this. I like going to my dances and I like being cool. And I don't want to give up any of that. Even though your heart says, but in your case, this is what's keeping you from a relationship to God. You can't serve both. You can't have it both ways. Now, some man, a preacher, in his wisdom may say, well, now God is bigger than that. God understands. And, and after all, nobody can be perfect. And you get that kind of junk coming into a person's life. You know what it does? It keeps you from recognizing your sins. 
It keeps you from measuring yourself before God. Remember what he said in the communion chapter in 1 Corinthians 11? The Bible says, if you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. Or as one commentator said, if you saw yourself the way God sees you, and you refuse to compromise yourself, but you reach a verdict against yourself as God has declared it, you do that, you won't be judged. But if you maintain your ways, remember the book of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know what the second part of that verse says? Yet I will maintain my righteous ways before him. Oh, that's my translation. I'll trust you. I'm going to stay with this. I'm not going to turn away from what I believe I ought to be doing, what I think is the way it ought to be. Look at the license we give ourselves as Christians. Dress, entertainment, language, bad music. Look at the dreadful nastiness and the grip it holds on many people in the church, pornography, women and men, boys and girls. And think of how when you're doing that stuff, if anybody here is guilty, think of how it's keeping you from getting free because you can't quit doing it. Stealing, lying, or cheating, or running your mouth. You can't even stop. And yet everything you're doing, God identifies as a sin against him. I didn't call you to do that. I didn't call you to live like that. When I speak to you, I want you to turn around. Recognize what you're doing and turn around. This is the New Testament message. God has come, the Bible says, to call sinners to repentance. To turn away from your sins and to turn around to be set free from the grip and the dominion of sin in your life. Now, what is repentance? There are basically two words in the New Testament, and probably many of you are familiar with it, for what sin is. One is a word which means pain of mind. It could be truly sorry for what you've done. There could be deep remorse. There could be sadness, grief. I mean, everything that's right, a person with this kind of repentance can feel it. But they never turn away from what they're sad about. Went to a party last night, you know, hanging around my buddies. I didn't want to be a dork, so I did a little drinking. Well, actually, I got a little bit, uh, you know, started with a buzz, and then it went into a bang, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm wild and crazy. Man, I am so sorry I did that. I cannot believe I did that. This is, oh, man, why would you let, come on, you know better than that. So you're sorry for what you did. You're sorry for what you said to somebody at that party and how you acted and how you maybe said or did some other things at that party. Now you're ashamed to go to church because of sin. That's what the devil does. And if you did go to church, you're not going to worship. No, you're not going to praise. Because he'll tell you right off the bat, you are a common, grade A, certified, registered hypocrite. That's as bad as you get. 
So this is a pain of mine. An alcoholic may feel it. He got drunk, had a wreck, tore up his car, cost him money. Oh, man, I, I drove too fast. But he'll drive fast again. He'll drink again. Or the porn thing. There is nobody who watches porn who doesn't feel guilty about it. Nobody. Because there is a sense of wrongness about it. There's a reason God said to cover your body. There's a reason why God spoke of nakedness. Even looking at a father's nakedness once brought a curse on a man. Yeah. But there's something about that that everybody that does it is guilty. And there is a need to repent of that and turn away from it. But if you only are sorry you did it, but you do it again tomorrow, you've still never repented. You've only felt bad about doing it, but you're still doing it. And that's lying and cheating and gossip and anything else we do that we know we shouldn't do. He that knows to do good and does it not to him is what? It's sin. It's offensive to God. If I don't see it as an offense to God, I see it in a legal sense, legal repentance, as an offense to myself. If I'm sorry for what I, oh, man, I shouldn't have done. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I repent. And that's good enough for this guy. Because as far as he's concerned, hey, who are you to tell me I didn't repent? You can't see my heart. He's okay. Then there's the repentance of the Pharisees. They have a legal relationship with the Bible, with the Word. They count their seeds. They knew to do that. They counted their little cumin and dill and anise, and they tithed, and they fasted, and they had their life arranged, and they read from the Bible every day what they wanted to read. And as they measured themselves, they did pretty good. Now, if they messed up anywhere, say, oh, Lord, Lord, I walked too many steps yesterday on the Sabbath. I know we're supposed to walk. It doesn't say how many, how far you shouldn't walk. I walked 103 yards. Oh, God, forgive me. And he's satisfied that because he's established the way it ought to be, if he breaks his own little rules and he repents of it within himself, he's fine. Most Christians are there. And then there's what we call evangelical repentance. If you've read much especially the Puritans. There is a thing called evangelical repentance, which is true repentance. When your heart is smitten, God gets all your attention and you see what you've done and you know the reason you did it because I'm a rebel and I wanted to. I not only hate what I have done as David did, I have sinned against you and I repent. I turn away from my sin as an act of my will because it is a choice you can make. You can sit here and go on your own way or you can do something about your life, any of you. It's your choice. It's your choice. I was reminded this day, walking around my bed, going into the bathroom, just as you know, a moment in your life. Your mission is to declare this word. That's all you got to do. Declare the word, because I was thinking, well, don't beat their brains out until they're all bleeding and laying on the floor crying and trying to get out of here. It's not your mission to be concerned about how God's word is going to affect people. 
Your mission is to preach it. So is yours. Declare it to whoever. The only reason we're ashamed to do that is because we put something before God, and that itself is a sin. You turn around. Evangelical repentance is when a man turns around. He turns towards God like David did. Against you. And you only have I sinned. It's not breaking the rules or it's not messing up last night at a party. I have sinned against God. The Lord Jesus Christ, who I want painted as a picture of somebody who's good and caring and doesn't judge sin and, and laughs a lot and puts up with me and wants my comfort and happiness as a chief goal in my life. But I see it different than that, Lord. I have taken things that are holy, and I've offended you with it. I've gone to church and sang the songs and raised my hands, and yet, Lord, I am a sinner. I have failed. I have fallen. I allow myself to do stuff continually. I'm not supposed to because I don't see it as an offense against you. And your mind begins to realize that you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. You can forgive yourself all you want to. That's what legal repentance does. You forgive yourself. But it leaves you empty. It leaves something greatly lacking in your life. Because until I come to Jesus personally, and like the public, when I bow my head before him and have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, all the good things I think about myself, all the accomplishments I think I've done, I've done this and gone there and given that and tried that and helped this and bought that, all of that means nothing. It's only a way of me doing what I think is good. And yet some of the weightier matters of the law, faith, well, I've been so afraid to trust you, Lord, because I'm afraid you won't do it. I know you said you would, but I don't think you will. And then I realize the problem is mine, not his. I come before God and say, Lord, I've had a bad attitude. I don't even think you're honest. I don't think you can be trusted. I've lived my whole life hearing what you said and gone out and doing what I think I ought to do. And you have said, man by his own wisdom cannot know God. He can fabricate a God. He can build himself a God. He can have a God he can presume. But he can't know the Lord. Until there comes that day in your life in which you bow your knee and your heart before God. And you're willing that day to turn away from your sin and let go of it. If I asked you this morning, if me and you had a meeting this week, and we're not going to, but if each one of you individually, if we sit down and I said, tell me about the day you repented, what happened? Do you remember the moment? Was it filled with sorrow? Was there anguish? Was there a deep inside despairing? Did you feel left out from heaven? Did you feel unworthy? Did you feel like you could do nothing right and everything you've ever done was wrong? Did you feel like that or was it 
I don't know if I've ever done that. I think that is your problem this morning on the 8th day of February, 2015. I think a lot of people, I'm not saying any of you, I'm leaving none of you out. I'm just saying, I don't know how many people have come to the Lord on his terms and have wept over their sins and their lost condition and their living resistant to God. I mean, I don't want to, I don't know what you think about it. I don't know what you think about it. That's in their heart. They've never given it up because they keep doing it week after week. They keep watching it week after week. They can't leave that one channel alone. They can't leave that moment alone. They cannot. And they know they are disgusting before God, but not to the point of giving it up. They somehow just say, well, I'm disgusted with myself. I know I shouldn't have done that, but well, whatever. You see, if we don't begin right in our Christian life, we can't continue right. Now, the title of the message this morning, that's the introduction. (laughs) Not really. But the title of the message this morning is The Essential Foundation. What we are founded on. Turn to Matthew 7. And if you want to, Luke 6. Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Same story. How many of you know it's easy to join church? I remember the church I grew up in, we made an appeal after the message. If you want to transfer your membership, come to our church. If you want to join and become a member of this church, come forward. Or if you've never been baptized, come forward. And the preacher, you know, would usually ask the person who came up crying or came up to be saved. And they say, do you admit that you're a sinner? Yes, I, yes, I, I am a sinner. Are you willing to trust the Lord now and go, go, yes, okay. Now you're saved. I believe there's more to it than that. I'm not judging a man's heart and how intense that came out when he said it, because we have different degrees and kinds of emotions. But there's something about, and again, I'm not a standard, but there's something about the moment you make this decision to give it up, to give up everything you dreaded giving up as a 28-year-old man, 28 years old. I remember the moment I said, I will, I began to weep. And I went to the front of the church and, you know, I knelt there and behind Bob Morgan over that return air duct on the floor. If you kneel on it, you get waffles on your knees. I didn't care. All I could think of, and I don't want to be dramatic about this or over-describe it or add to it and make it flamboyant. All I could think of was how shameful I was because I was reminded like in a flash when I came to my senses of how I had lived in church, played church, checked out the girls while I was in church. So many things I'm ashamed of. Just, I don't even want to talk about it. And how I desperately wanted God to forgive me. I wasn't sure that he would. But I remember praying that day. I cried. I didn't even care if somebody saw me crying. I didn't care. 
This became that moment the most important thing in my life. As I look back now, I realize now that had this day not come in my life, the very best I could have done with my life was be a member of a church. And when I died, I would perish in all my perceived goodness and efforts and everything else because I wasn't living for Christ. I was living for me. I didn't see him as the one I had offended and sinned against. No, he's, you know, he understands nobody's prayer. I mean, the problem's not with him, the problem's down here, but with, with me. And I remember that day when I got up, there was a sense of relief, which is a good evidence. There was a brightness. Something good had happened to me. I didn't know how to say it then. I could say now I had been forgiven. God who sees the heart, I can't see hearts. God sees hearts. He knows when you've connected. He knows. And when you have connected, he does something that only he can do that I cannot explain. How you know that it's happened? How do you know there's a restoration to fellowship or a being brought to fellowship? But he said in Matthew 7, he said there was a builder. Two houses were being built at the end of this chapter. He said, everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and doeth them, I will show you who he is like. He's like a wise man who built a house. But before he built the house, what did he do? He found a rock. What is a rock in this case? A foundation, that's right. That's what you build on. A builder will tell you that before you build a house, you've got to lay a foundation. Otherwise, a house will sink and it'll this way, and then your house is damaged. You've got to lay a foundation, something. There has to be a trench dug, or, and blocks have to be laid, or something poured, or concrete, something. And you've got to make sure that this is enough, and it's deep enough and stable enough, because you're going to build a several-ton house on top of that. Now, if you don't get this right, if you don't get the foundation right, the house eventually will be worth nothing. I read a story many years ago. I looked it up in archives of some of my notes and found the story, and it was in California. A hospital had been built. During an earthquake, the hospital was extremely damaged. Some of the parts of it fell. There was a loss of life. Other buildings around it didn't crumble like that and didn't fall that way. But the hospital didn't last long. The first time it was shaken, it went down. Part of it did. And in an investigation, they found out that the builder, the contractor who built the hospital, had cut corners with the foundation, assuming, assuming that that's overkill to do all that kind of stuff, especially in an area where there's earthquakes. Oh, that's overkill. That ain't going to happen in your life. So they cut corners. And a lot of people died because of it. They had to tear the building down because it was no longer habitable. It couldn't be rebuilt because the foundation's wrong. Now, in a spiritual sense, what happens to us if we come to the Lord without a foundation, without repentance, without, first of all, Lord, I recognize my sin, my heart, my mind, everything that's natural and emotional about me 
is guilty. God is an act of my will. I turn away from that. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm going to handle the world. I have to trust you with my future, but I'm turning my back on that stuff. See, that word repent means to turn around, change your mind. And when you do that, when those things begin to happen, you begin to see that God begins to make himself in your life somebody that you've never had before. Remember Jesus said one time he would disclose himself? If any man hears my word and does it, he said, I'll show you what he's like. And he said in John 14, if a person will keep my word, this is what will happen to him. I will reveal myself to him. How long does that take? It doesn't say. But there will become a revelation and awareness. Something is new and living. A new creature in Christ has a new mind, has new direction. It's not without its problems because you've never been there before. Oh, what's this going to cause? What will people think? Doesn't matter. I surrender a whole lot. I surrender quite a bit. All to Jesus, a whole lot of stuff in my life, I surrender. No. You give it all up. Let me ask you a question. If you don't give it all up for him, will he give all of himself up for you? It's a good deal. You were bought with a price. You believe that? Amen. You belong to him, not yourself. You have no right to say no to God. You have no right to draw back and say, well, I don't think I'm ready for that. Who said you weren't ready for that? God wouldn't show you something you weren't ready for. You just don't want to. It's that unrepentant, sinful attitude that puts God somewhere else than on his throne. And you make him out to be somebody that understands you and pleases you and wants you to be happy and comfortable. And you begin to live that way, but it's such a dead, empty, religious life. It goes nowhere. It's just going through the motions of singing songs and doing this and doing that. But your foundation's wrong. If you don't come to Christ with repentance to establish yourself in Christ as somebody totally given to him, relying on him, the chief cornerstone and you, to grow up into him and all things, to be like him, this is what's got to be. In Luke 6, this is what he said in verse 46. He said, and why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? And do not keep my commandments. Do not do the things I want you to do. Let me ask you a question. Look at that. Jesus said, isn't it simple? No big words. Simplicity here. Why do you call me Lord? He said to his people, to his followers. Why do you call me Lord, but you will not do what I tell you to do? That doesn't make me Lord. It means Lord in some form to you because you've imagined yourself being all right. You're not all right because anytime you won't live on his terms, 
It's because you don't want to. And the main reason people don't want to is because they have never been a repentant convert, never turned a corner, been sorry for your sins a whole lot of your life, a lot of legal repentance, but not necessarily evangelical repentance, which you give up all controversy with God when you lay down all rights to yourself and you beseech God to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you, as David said, from all your iniquity and guide you in a way that's everlasting. And he can't guide you anywhere if you're not willing to go, but you have a broken heart once. You have a true moment with God where your heart's broken and deep contrition, as he speaks of in the Psalms, comes. And that visitation comes from him. And you come to your senses and a recognition of who he is in his greatest, most pure and wonderful state and how dreadfully terrible you've been. By your own will, you will turn the corner. But he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Verse 47, whoever comes to me and here's what I have to say and does it. I will show you who he is like. He's like the man in Matthew 7 who builds a house. He builds it on a firm foundation. It'll never fall. It'll be tested. The winds will blow or hurricanes and earthquakes may come. But this house will not fall. It'll be shaken. You'll think it's going to fall sometime, but it will not fall. God wants us to realize that unless we repent, we perish. And it's not that he wants you to perish. God doesn't want you to perish. You've got to be willing to turn. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Christ? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did he do? Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. He said, I've kept these from my youth. Jesus said to him, there's only one thing you lack. Yes. Yes, Rabbi. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Because you see, all the riches you have will keep you from trusting God. You'll count on what you've done and pride yourself in how clever you were in doing it and getting it. And you won't trust the Lord because you found something else you can trust in if the Lord doesn't want to do what he said. Give it all up. Give it to the poor. And you come, take up your cross and follow me. He could have said, where are we going? It doesn't matter. You follow me. Where I lead you, you will follow. What I feed you, you will swallow and so forth. One day at a time, you trust the Lord with all your heart and you lean not to your own understanding. How do we get to this repentance? been talking about it, but specifically, who gets to repent? Can we all repent? God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. That's the message. It goes out. Why? Why should we repent? Because as a people, as a nation, all we like sheep of what? Even though he has appeared to you and confronted you and given you his eternal word, we still turn away from it. 
because something else is bigger than God. And so, how do we repent? Let me tell you, first of all, number one, repentance is a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's something that God alone can give. I do not believe any man can repent or woman anytime you want to. I don't. I know people feel sorry about things they've done all the time. I'm sure the rich young ruler left in a sorrowful state that I can't give up everything I've worked hard to get because he would say what man's wisdom would say. That doesn't make any sense. Why would God ask me to do that? And so he wouldn't do it because he was more wise than God was. But he said, a wise man doesn't do that. But anyway, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, you were there last week. Just listen to me. Let me tell you what it says. He says, it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Now think about it for just a minute. If it is the goodness of God, we spoke of goodness last week for a moment. If it is God's goodness, his concern and desire for you to change the course of your life so he doesn't have to judge you. God is not willing that any man should perish. It is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. He brings you sometimes quietly, sometimes like the prodigal son, one day you become aware. But if God doesn't make you aware and bring you to your senses, if this doesn't happen, you're going to die in your sins. And if you don't respond to God, you'll probably die in your sins anyway. It's that narrow. It's a narrow way. But listen, the good hope is that it's God and his goodness that leads you to repentance. Now, if he leads you to repentance, then you can. You can walk away from. If he leads you to the kind of repentance that restores you to God, then you can walk away from stuff. You can quit lying and telling stories. You can quit stealing. You can quit being a gossip. You can. You can quit going places you shouldn't go and wearing some of that nasty stuff you wear. You can. You can give it all up. You just need to see who he is. What did Job say in chapter 42? When he realized when God presented himself to him in two or three chapters and made aware to Job the immensity of God, Job said, I put my hands on my mouth. He said, Lord, I've heard of you and I've talked about it, but now I see who you really are. And I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And God restored him. He did something that God said, you're in. He restored him. Only God can do this. this is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Look at 2 Timothy 2.25. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Let me ask you a question. 
Can you know the truth, the truth, without repenting? You can know a version of it, but you can't know it. Listen to it again. If God perhaps, he said, will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Who's he talking about? Those in the church who are opposing the message. Those who are saying, uh-uh, not me. I ain't going to do it. No, I don't believe it. It's that crowd. He said, if perhaps God will grant them repentance. Repentance is something that God gives. If the new birth is of God, so is repentance, which leads and is essential to the new birth. Or when Paul gave his testimony to his Hebrew brethren in Acts 11, because they said, what are you doing going to the Gentiles? Why are you going over there to that bus? They're not a part of this. The message is not for them. Peter said, how could I resist? I had a vision. And in the vision, there was a message. And in the message, there was a compelling requirement to go to this house, a Gentile's house, and to preach and declare. And while he was there telling about the message, the Holy Ghost fell. And the Jews back in Jerusalem said, it is obvious, therefore, that God has granted to the Gentiles repentance, and then another word, to life. It's always repentance first and something else. But it's something that God grants and God gives. You may think, as I did many years ago, well, when I get to be old, I'm not yet. But when I get to be old, I'll probably join church and get my life right with God, so I'll go to heaven. You can't do that. Or you can do it to some form, and, and they'll preach well about you at your funeral. But you miss heaven a long way. Didn't Jesus say to a bunch of men one time? Who said to him, Lord, we've done this. We've cast out demons. We've worked miracles. No doubt a hundred other things that we could do where we pride ourselves in what we have done. And Jesus said, I never what? I never knew you. Whew. If I were a student of the Bible, I would say, then in what way do we know you? Well, he just said a while ago to the Second Timothy 2.25 that he would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Repentance is a gift. It's something that God gives. It's something that we would praise him for. How does he do it? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. You know this. For godly sorrow, what? For godly sorrow worketh repentance. Does it say that? It causes it to happen. Again, we're talking about how God is the author of all of this and how it works. Worketh means to accomplish. Worketh means to perform. It's to fashion, to bring forth. Godly sorrow. Now, let me ask you a question before you finish reading. Where does godly sorrow come from? It comes from God. Would God ever make you sorry? Would God ever make his people sorry? Would he ever make you to see something that he sees that you don't see? Would he ever make you at that divine moment to loathe yourself? How could I have lived all this time and prided myself in what I've done? I don't even know you. 
I've been serving a stranger my whole life. I don't even know who you are. And every time the preacher preached about you, I read a comic books or text somebody in the church. You sorry thing. I didn't even have any desire to pay attention. Oh, but he said godly sorrow to the likes of you texting people, watching porn, drinking, carousing. Worse. Worse than that. Messing with somebody, living with somebody. Going places, hanging around a crowd that's corrupting you and defying everything you've been taught from the Lord. Everything. You found your pleasure in all of those kind of things. It is you and people like you and me that God makes sorry. Oh, God. Have you ever been there? Don't answer. But has it ever been a time in your life in which you realize how sinful you were before God? Not yourself and not how many mistakes you've made by not doing what the Bible said, but how you have offended God. Have you ever felt heaviness because, oh, God, and then felt like you need to get out of here before the building falls in? We'll go back to verse 10. He said that godly sorrow worketh repentance, never to be regretted. Two different words, but this second word means you'll never wish it never happened. You'll never regret the day of your repentance when God brings forth repentance by his loving, compassionate power and might. God singled you out to make you sorry. You loathe yourself. You feel bad about yourself. You ask God to forgive you as David did. Listen to these two different translations. Listen to this. For when sorrow is in accordance with God's will, it results in a repentance leading to salvation, which will never be regretted. Huh. A sorrow that comes from God. Or another translation says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, a repentance which brings no regret, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. It does. You know why the sorrow of the world? Because there's no solutions. You realize that? Money's not a solution. Retirement income is not a solution. The greatest medical advancement of all time, the greatest laboratory discovery is not a solution. Because if you live and gain this whole world and you lose your soul, you've lost everything. And you can't get any of it back. And God calls people like that. And his godly sorrow lays on us. It's heavy. And you realize, oh God. How long did David go through this? I don't know. How long after Nathan's visit, I said earlier, and he began to pin these things down? I'm sure in the anguish of his soul, he pinned them down. I mean, he obviously wasn't free yet because he wrote, Lord, restore. If he had been restored, he wouldn't have any reason to write that. He went through it for a while. He carried it around with him. Oh, God. And again, how do you know when that deliverance from God comes and... You're free to, I don't know. 
I don't know. Everybody's different there, I think. But I believe the day that joy and peace comes back to your life and you can put a smile on your face again and find yourself going before God without restrictions and the door is open, I believe that's when repentance fully ends. But I think you'll repent of something the rest of your life and I don't think you'll ever forget the weight of this moment. I don't think David ever, ever forgot in his whole life about Bathsheba. I think when he thought about it, there was this moment of, as with all of us, as sins passed. You know you're forgiven. You know you're forgiven. But you also know you're capable of doing such a thing as you did. You got to keep yourself close to God. The message of holiness comes forth from this type of a person, a person who is not very holy in the way they've lived, but now aspire to it and want it. I want to speak next time on conversion because the Bible says repent and be converted. Because you see, as John the Baptist said, you who want to be baptized, he said, go show by your fruits that you've repented. Show by your life that you've repented. What if I said to you, all of you have a mandate from God to show by the way you live, the people you live around, that you have turned away from your sins. You have that responsibility to reveal to anybody around you that you have turned away from your sins. You've changed your mind. You're not like you used to be anymore. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away and what? Either they are or they aren't. Let me close with three things about biblical repentance. And we'll close with this. Stage one is you've got to inform the mind. You have to be made aware. The preaching of the word brings conviction. Your conscience comes into play. Because the words of God, when God directs them to your heart, they have a sting. When God doesn't direct his word to your heart, it's just academic. It doesn't mean anything. But when God puts that word in your heart and it has its work, there's this, oh, because now the mind is informed. You are aware that you are a sinner. You are aware of the kind of sinner you are. Stage two is you stir the emotions. You begin to feel something. Godly sorrow is usually accompanied by weeping. A broken heart, contrition. God doesn't despise stuff like that. But there is this time in which your emotions and the weight of your sins and the inward disconnect that you have and you realize how lonely you really are in life and you begin to to want this and there was this urge and desire physically and emotionally to bow the head and cry out to God you never did it before but now God is doing something and then finally you command the will you command the will you must be willing because repentance is a choice. Nobody can repent for you. 
No church can be good enough that you don't need to repent. No family you grew up in, no godly mother or father is good enough to get you in heaven without repentance. Everybody in this room by nature is a child of disobedience. By nature, you were. The only hope is to be born again. And the new birth always begins. A message, the urge, the command. And unless you do that, you'll be like Peter. You'll be standing afar off when Jesus was going to the cross and being judged. He stood afar off to see what the end would be. You won't get involved. And yet, when God comes into your life, I don't know how else to explain this. When something holy and divine confronts you, June the 30th, 1968, holding on to the pew in the back of the church. A moment. A moment that was an opportunity. I can. I can get out of here right now. And I can get saved. Yeah, but what if you fail? What if you go up there and do all this kind of stuff? And like everybody else you've ever known, what if it doesn't work and then you go back to where you were? Then you look like a fool. Remember you tried that once in college and it didn't work. When, when you got home, you remember what happened? You can't do it. Just some people can, some people can't. You're not one of them. Now, you might think that's kind of funny, but you know, when you're 28 years old and you think you're somebody when you're not, and up there, just a few steps away, is a place that I can go. I could have done it here, but it was required to go up there. I had to go up, get out of my pew, and walk down in front of the people I grew up in front of since I was in kindergarten. The whole church knew them all. And walk up there and bow my knee. And then it just gushed. Everything just gushed. I look back to this day. I am so glad that day happened. I am so glad for that moment when God showed me and turned me around. I'm not a perfect man. Am I, Bonnie? Well, don't shake it that hard. But I believe as God, the entrance of his word continues to come, I believe it will continue to change. Because every time you see something wrong, you repent. You turn away from it. How about you this morning? All of you that are sitting here, those of you that are watching, have you ever repented of your past and your sins? Have you ever seen yourself as vile before God? Have you ever seen your need for something that will relieve you from David's guilt? And yours, it's a choice. There's nobody this day has to leave this building and go home and wonder about that. You can do something about it right now. You can come up here and I'll pray with you. That doesn't make it work because you came up here. You can do it right there in your seat. But if you do, tell me about it because I'm going to watch your life. I'm going to see if you really did. I'm going to see if you really have turned the corner because we owe that to each other in our support of each other to live a life that is an encouragement to each other. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to measure your word to our heart very carefully so that we miss nothing. May the information you have for us convict us Draw us, 
lead us to that place where we truly surrender. Not with regret, not so much with fear, but because a loving and grateful God has given you this opportunity. A loving and compassionate God has made you grateful. If this is the day of your salvation that you began with repentance, then surrender yourself. You can do it where you are, or you can come up and we'll talk with you. But let it be your day, if it's a need today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand to your feet. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to song is precious. I remember that song. In verse 2, wasn't it? To cleanse my soul of one dark blot. And I made my journey, my 30-foot journey, 40-foot journey from the back to the front. Amen. I am thankful this morning to God. I am grateful for his goodness and his kindness that he has shown to me and my family and to you and this family. Greet somebody this morning before you go home. Deal with your life. And just say, God spoke to me this morning. If you can say that, you're free to go home. God bless all of you. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs>